told me this morning that they liked the sermon title. And I said, well, that's good because I am not very good at doing sermon titles. Um, it's not something that I relish or have any ability in. It's kind of like the fact that there's a good one this morning is kind of like a, a clock, a broken clock being right twice a day. That's how I am with sermon titles. And so um, you can expect to wait another six months for a good sermon title. So be ready for it, though. It's coming. Glad you're here this morning, and then we get to study uh, this passage in the Gospel of John together. Uh, there was a guy named William Dillon, who was 21 years old in the year I was born, 1981, when he, Dillon, or William, was convicted of murder in the state of Florida and sentenced to life in prison. Now, almost immediately following the conviction, questions were raised about the evidence that was used to convict him in the trial. There were three main lines of evidence that were used. One was a former girlfriend of his had testified that she'd seen him at the crime scene standing over the body, when in reality, just a couple weeks after he's convicted, she comes forward and confesses that it had all been made up. She hadn't really seen him there, and the only reason that she had said that was because she'd been threatened with prison if she didn't testify against him. Part of the evidence against him was they used a police dog and matched the dog's uh, sniffing his scent up to um, some evidence, and that supposedly confirmed him as the killer. That guy that had the, the dog uh, was later proved to be unreliable and that the dog had missed in many, many trials. And then the third major piece of evidence was testimony from a fellow prisoner. While William was in jail, a prisoner came forward and said that Dylan had confessed to committing the murder to him while he was in jail. I believe they call that person a snitch. None of it is clear and reliable evidence, and yet he was convicted on it and was sentenced to life in prison at 21 years of age. Finally, as all of this came out, it took a while, but in 2008, through DNA testing, it was conclusively confirmed that he was not the killer, and he was released from prison, and he was paid $1.3 million for his wrongful conviction. However, it's a nice sum of money, at least it was back then, in 2008. Maybe not so much today. But he spent 27 years in jail for something that he didn't do. Now, in many ways, there's nothing more horrifying than an injustice like this, than a, a wrongful conviction, because it's, it's such a travesty of justice. It's awful to think about the possibility of being locked away in prison for something that you know you didn't do. And of course, there's, there's never been a more wrong conviction than what we're going to get to in the coming chapters than of our Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. John MacArthur put it like this, no victim of injustice was ever more innocent than the sinless son of God. And yet no one ever suffered more agony than he did. He was cruelly executed by men who openly acknowledged his faultlessness. Yet at the same time, Barabbas, a murderous, thieving insurrectionist, was summarily set free. It was the greatest travesty of justice the world will ever see. Now we've reached the point in our study of the Gospel of John where we're going to enter into the last week of Jesus' life. And everything 
so far has pointed to this, but even more so now, everything becomes focused on his death and leading up to his death and his departure from this world. In chapter 11, we saw the last couple of weeks he had just performed the last of his earthly signs, other than rising from the dead himself, but the last of his earthly signs where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this sign, this miracle, proves to be the catalyst that provokes the religious leaders to try to to come up with a plot to put him to death. They're committed to it, as you'll see in this passage after this point. And yet, it's this, amazingly enough, it's this resolve that these wicked men have to kill him and to commit this unbelievable, this, this injustice, this travesty of justice. It's that resolve and that plot that ends up becoming the pathway to our life. For you and I, this great injustice becomes the most important thing that has ever happened for us. And this injustice and what happens here in the death of Christ and the way that this passage in particular this morning points to it is going to provide, I think, great encouragement for you and I as we begin to look more acutely toward the death of Christ and toward the injustice that was done to him. And so in this passage, John eleven forty five 45 through chapter 12 and verse 11, this is sort of a transition passage. It may be easy to skip over this or just breeze through it in your Bible reading, but I think it has some significant things to teach us about the death of Christ and encouragement that we can draw from that. And so here's what I'm going to show you this morning. Two encouragements drawn from the unjust death of Christ. The first one of these is that the plot to kill Jesus showcases his substitutionary sacrifice. It clearly anticipates that and puts that on display so that you and I can can think of his death in terms of a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, in many ways, the Lazarus story that we looked at the last couple of weeks just continues in the last part of chapter 11. I want you to look with me at verse 45. Right after Jesus has told them to unbind Lazarus and let him go, Verse 45 says, many of the Jews, therefore, right, so linked back to the story of Lazarus, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You'll remember when it says that many who had come with Mary, if you look back in verse 31 of chapter 11, Mary gets up to go and see Jesus, verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And so this group of Jews, whoever they were, a mixture of paid mourners and of friends who were there to console her, they get up with her, they go to the tomb where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, and they listen to him pray, and they watch this man come out of the tomb who has been dead for four days. They hear his sister complain to Jesus and be concerned that he's going to stink, and so they shouldn't open up the stone. There's no doubt that this guy is dead, and yet he walks out of the tomb bound up in his grave clothes. These Jews watch this unfold and happen in front of their eyes. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen John say that many people believed in Jesus because of a sign, and then he'll point out that this faith isn't full and adequate faith. 
because it's more in the miracle itself and not in Jesus as the the living son of God. And so we don't know exactly what this faith is here that it talks about in verse 45. But the fact is that many of them were overcome with this experience, and rightly so. Watching a dead man walk out of a tomb is an amazing thing to witness. And so many believed in him to some extent, but then in verse 46, you have this whole other group who go directly to the Pharisees and tattle on Jesus. I can't think of a better word to use than tattle. It's what we tell our five-year-old and our six-year-old not to do, right? Don't tattle. Well, they do that. They go to the religious leaders and tell them what Jesus had done. And so, verse 47, the Pharisees gather together with the other members of the council, the Sanhedrin. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, and that would be the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 religious leaders, mostly chief priests, but then some Pharisees were involved in this group as well. And this group is the ultimate authority over Israel at this time related to religious matters. And so they gather together and look at what they say at the end of verse 47. What are we to do for this man performs many signs? Notice here, they do not deny that he performs many signs. They are very clear that these things have happened. A man who was born blind has been healed and can now see. A guy who's been dead for four days walks out of the tomb. They're not denying his power, his ability to heal people, or even his ability to raise the dead. In fact, it's that very ability that drives his popularity, and that power and that popularity has them afraid. Look at verse 48. If... We let him go on like this. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ultimately, what they're worried about is they're worried that Jesus will be proclaimed king. And as the people proclaim him king, there will be a popular uprising against Rome. And the people will try to fight off the Roman invaders. And then this will result in something that has happened before in Israel, in the Romans coming in and destroying them. Now, they talk here about their place and their nation. Obviously, the nation refers to the nation of Israel, but the place that they're talking about most likely refers to the temple. There have been hints at this before in the Gospel of John. Remember in John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is not crazy that the religious leaders are thinking this way. I'm sure there have been rumors about this and people have been talking about it, something they've heard. But ultimately, the Sanhedrin are self-focused, right? They don't want their position and their power and their authority to be taken away. Which is crazy here. Think about the reasoning that they are, they're, they're using here. You have a guy who can feed 5,000 people, who can heal a man born blind, who can raise the dead, and they don't want to follow him and trust him to, in their minds, be able to overcome the Romans. I mean, this is the guy you want on your side, right? Rather than following him and trusting him, they want to remain in charge. And they're willing to do whatever it takes 
to keep a hold of their power and their authority. Look at how their leader presents the plan for them. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Not a gentle fella, I suppose. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now it's important here that you understand and make a connection to Caiaphas's role as the high priest. The high priest was the most important religious figure in Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with the role of the high priest. What did he do? He was the representative, the mediator between God and the people. He was the one who was ultimately, for the Israelites, responsible to uphold the covenant. He was the one that was responsible to ensure that sacrifices were carried out properly. Those tasks fell on his shoulders. He was the one who, according to Leviticus 16, went into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer blood on the mercy seat as atonement for the people's sins. And his point here is that they should kill Jesus as a scapegoat. That's the idea here. In other words, here's how he's assessing the situation in front of him. It's reached a point in his mind where either the nation will die, the Romans will come in, they'll kill them as the Sanhedrin, they'll destroy the temple, they'll take away their nation. Either the nation will die or... This guy has to die. It's got to be one or the other. That's the logic that he's following here. Now, it's a fascinating point, really, what he says here. And John explains the implications of what Caiaphas says in verses 51 and 52. Look there. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Amazing. Ironic, right? Caiaphas wasn't intentionally speaking about the substitutionary death of Christ. That was not on his radar. But from our vantage point, looking back on this passage, and certainly from John's vantage point, The irony is thick here, and there's absolute truth in his words. John makes this clear in verse 51. He makes it clear specifically when he speaks of Caiaphas as the high priest. He says this again, and he ties his words to the fact that he's the high priest. Look at 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year. Why does John make such a big deal out of the fact that this is the high priest and he's the one speaking this? Because of his particular role in the life of Israel. He was a mediator. His his job was to represent the people before God. I mean, look at all the way back at the beginning in Exodus how this is described when it comes to the very first high priest, Aaron talking about his clothing, and in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, 
And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so he talks this way because he's the high priest and he understands representation and mediation and he understands what is called, what is required of him to bear Israel's sins and failures before the Lord. So he says this without knowing what he's pointing to. And as we look back and we see his words here, this clarifies for us the whole point of Jesus's death. This gets to the heart of it. As we get into the later chapters in the Gospel of John, we're going to read all of it in light of what Caiaphas says here. In fact, John is going to circle back around to this statement again and mention it again at Jesus's trial. This is the point. He's going to be the representative for the nation of Israel. And verse 52, look there. It's not just going to be for Israelites that he's going to die. Verse 52, and not for the nation only. He's not just a Jewish Messiah, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He's going to die for his people who are scattered all over the world, and his death is going to provide a substitutionary atonement for them to bring them to himself. It's his life or ours. Either we will die in our sins or he will die. And it's because Jesus dies in the gospel of John as a sacrificial substitute for us that we receive all of these benefits. All of these wonderful benefits come to us because he is our substitute, because he's our representative, he's our mediator, he is our high priest. Where do we find out about these benefits? Well, they're all over the New Testament, but I want to show you one passage in particular that fleshes them out for us. Romans chapter 5, I want you to turn there. Look at this with me. This is one of my favorite passages to consider and to think about. And I want to walk you through it this morning very quickly. Romans 5, we're going to start in verse 6. And as I read verses 6 through 8, I want you to look and notice substitutionary language, right? It's very clearly laid out here that Jesus dies for certain people on their behalf as a substitute for them. Verse 6, for while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Obviously here, the language is pervasive that Jesus dies for the ungodly. What does this substitution accomplish? When he dies on our behalf as a sacrificial lamb, as John points out in John chapter 1, what does that accomplish for us? Now in verse 9 in Romans 5, you get to the results, the benefits that come to you and to me every single day as we live in this reality 
of Christ as our sacrificial substitute. I want to show you three benefits here in verses 9 through 11. And let these benefits encourage you that these things are absolutely true of you this morning if you have come to faith in Christ. If he has called you as his own, you've repented of your sins, turned from your sins, and turned to trust in him for salvation. These benefits come to you. First of all, in verse 9, justification comes to you. Look at verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. What does the word justification mean? It's a judicial term, right? It's like a courtroom scene is being envisioned for us when this word justification is used. And what it means is that even though we are sinners, which Romans 5, 6 through 8 makes very clear, the ungodly, we are sinners, Even though we are sinners, by his blood shed for us, we are now justified, which means we are declared righteous. You're not actually righteous this morning. You don't perfectly obey every commandment. You're not sinless this morning. But if you are a follower of Christ this morning, you are declared righteous by God through Christ. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ And now God's verdict as the judge of the universe is that you are righteous because Jesus is your substitute. We receive his righteousness. He took our sin. Romans 4 and verse 5. And to the one who does not work, right? You don't earn this by working for it. There's no way you can earn righteousness, but believes In him who justifies, there's our word, the ungodly. But his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is the instrument by which the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. Secondly, the second benefit back in Romans chapter 5 is another big Bible word, propitiation. Now this word is not used here, but the concept is And I want to make sure you understand what that's getting at. Propitiation. That's the word that we use, the Bible uses, to talk about the satisfaction of God's wrath toward sin. Look at the rest of verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from, what? The wrath of God. It's uncomfortable to think about, but the eternal, holy, omnipotent God of the universe has wrath toward sin. It is not something that we as finite, temporary, weak human beings should take lightly or casually. He hates sin. Sin is a parasite in his good creation. It corrupts and it destroys. And he is a God of love and harmony and beauty. And sin is against all of those things. And so he hates it. He hates sin. And the Bible paints a picture of him as hating those who commit sin in his world. This is the real problem that every human being must deal with. God hates sin, and there's nothing I can do about it. I cannot turn his wrath aside from me. 
on my own. I can't hide from it. I can't get away from it. But what has happened is that Christ has stepped in as our substitute in your place, and he has satisfied God's wrath for sin. He paid the penalty, and so now we are saved. That's the language used in verse 9. We are saved from the prospect of being judged for our sin and found guilty under God's wrath. Third benefit. Look at verse 10 and 11. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The third benefit here is that you are reconciled to God through Christ's work as a substitute. Romans 5 began this way. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our justification being declared righteous, the wrath of God being removed from us, puts us in a position of having peace with God. Imagine that. Think about that. This may be the most wonderful benefit that comes to us because of Christ's substitutionary work. We are at peace with the almighty, omnipotent God of the universe. The wall of separation keeping us apart has been obliterated. His wrath has been removed over sin. And now there is open communion and love. One of my favorite songwriter singers John Mark McMillan has this song called Nothing Stands Between Us. It's a great song and the chorus clarifies what he's talking about in our relationship with God. It says, nothing stands between us now but love. And that's exactly how your relationship with God works. Nothing stands between you, open communion between you and the Father. The only thing that stands between you now and him is love. That's the ground on which we walk in our relationship with him. And these are the very real results. This is not theory. This is not abstract. These are very real results that make a difference in your life this week because Jesus died as your substitute. And amazingly enough, back in John 11, if you'll go back there with me, amazingly enough, in God's sovereign wisdom and his providence, these benefits come to you because of God working through these religious leaders. Look at verse 53. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, probably 20 miles away, and there he stayed with the disciples. There have been indications in John's gospel before that they wanted to kill Jesus. They've even tried to stone him maybe a couple of times in the gospel. But now the plot comes from the highest religious authority in the land. And now, according to verse 53, they are resolved to do this. They're committed to it. They're going to see that it happens. And this brings us to our second encouragement from the unjust death of Christ. 
The radical devotion of his followers contrasts the selfish betrayal of his enemies. Look at verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is probably a couple months later. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. If you've been following with us in the Gospel of John, you know that the Passover has played a pretty key role in this Gospel, in the flow of it so far. John has drawn our attention to at least a couple of other Passovers that Jesus has been involved in. This is the last one for his earthly life, the final Passover that he will participate in here on earth. And most of the rest of the gospel is going to take place over the course of the next week, right? Passover is coming up, and we'll find out in chapter 12, verse 1, that it's six days before the Passover, and almost everything that happens happens in the next seven days in the final life of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. But leading up to this final Passover, tensions are at an all-time high in Jerusalem. Look at verse 56 and 57. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is going to lead us into the triumphal entry, which we'll get to in a couple weeks in chapter 12, where they're all in Jerusalem and preparing for for the coming Passover here. But on the night before he enters Jerusalem in that triumphal entry on Sunday, the week before his death, on Saturday night, the week before his death, he spends some time having a meal with his friends. And this is what chapter 12 gets into. So look at verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, couple miles from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. It's always amazing to me here that we don't get any info about, and the Bible's not even interested in what happened to Lazarus. Like, dead for four days? Like, what happened? Where was he? What was he doing? What was it like? Those are all the questions that I would be interested in asking him. But the Bible's not interested in those, and that should give us pause on anyone who claims that they experienced something post-death regarding heaven or hell and came back and is now going to sell us a book for $29.99 about their experience. Nothing. Instead, where does the focus remain here? Where it always is, on Jesus. That's where the focus is. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this is a Roman pound, not uh, our pound. It's a little bit less, about 11 ounces, still quite a bit of perfume and ointment to use. Nard was a ex- uh, very, obviously, expensive expensive oil that was extracted from a root that was grown in India at this time. So obviously, with all the, without the ease of shipping that we have today, this would have taken a while to get there. Trade routes, this is expensive stuff as we, as we see. Now notice here, as she, as she anoints him with this, that she wipes his feet with her hair. We'll get back to that in a moment. But I just want you to make note of that, and I'll come back to it. 
But regardless, this is an act of radical devotion to Jesus. This is something that's expensive that she is using on him to show how wonderful and valuable he is. But this act of devotion, which we'll talk about more in a second, is contrasted here by John. He wants us to see this in contrast with what he talks about next with this man named Judas. This guy is only concerned with self. Look at verses 4 and 5. But, right, here's the contrast that he wants us to see. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, Judas was mentioned in chapter 6 as one who was going to betray Jesus. But even with that in the background, his question here on the surface seems to be asked in good faith, right? I mean, I could probably see myself asking this question in some ways. It's clearly an expensive bottle of perfume. You probably have heard this before, but 300 denarii would have been equal to about a year's worth of wages for a day laborer. I'm sure day laborers weren't exactly making bank, but it's a year's worth of wages. This is a lot of money to be poured into this little bottle of perfume. It's enough money to do quite a bit of good for poor people. So on the surface, it seems like a legitimate question, but it's not at all. It's not asked in good faith at all. It's masked as altruistic, but really it's self-centered. Judas is interested in himself. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know the story that ultimately Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is a guy who will use other people in whatever means is necessary to get what he wants. He is driven by love for self, by here and later by love of money. Mary, on the other hand, teaches us about true devotion to others, and particularly here to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the highest object of her love. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus' point here is not to say, don't worry about the poor. The poor don't matter. He's talking about this particular moment of time leading up to his death. And he's emphasizing the fact that she has given him a great gift of love. Now, the language is a little bit confusing here. You probably have a note that points you down to the margin. I think that's helpful. And here's what I think John is getting at, or what Jesus is getting at, rather, in verse 7 regarding Mary. She had kept this perfume saved it, knowing how expensive it was, it was valuable to her, and she had kept it for a moment like this. She'd been keeping it and hoping for a moment like this, and even though she may not have realized it, she is prophesying through this act about Jesus's upcoming burial. Regardless, in all of this, the key thing to note, and what John draws our attention here to, is the contrast between Judas and between Mary between selfishness and devotion to another. 
You see another example of selfishness in verses 9 to 11. Look there. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Wild. They knew this guy had been raised from the dead, an unbelievable display of authority and power and overcoming death, and they were willing to kill him in order to silence him and to keep people from believing in Jesus. Back to the contrast between Judas and Mary, between selfishness and devotion. It's interesting, and I told you we'd get back to this, but that she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Now that word, wiped, is only used one other time in the Gospel of John, and it's used in John 13, verse 5, as Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and wipes the feet of his disciples. And when Jesus does that in John 13, I want you to see what he says regarding the significance of that. And then we'll put it together with what Mary does here. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think Mary's act of devotion here anticipates what Jesus does a few chapters later. It's like a a precursor to that. And it anticipates what Jesus here ultimately calls his followers to, right? To do the same sort of thing as, as he has done and as Mary has done. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Two things. First of all, Mary teaches us that being a follower of Christ means a devotion to him. Jesus, because he is God, deserves our highest level of affection and devotion. He is worthy. Worthy. It is a good investment for you and I to use the time, the resources, the loves of our heart and to devote those and give those over to him, to have him be the highest center of our affections and loves. It's a worthwhile investment. You and I have been given precious few days on this earth. I crossed an important threshold last year, the age of 40. I know to some of you, Nothing but a spring chicken, and that's all right. It's kind of a big deal. 40, right? Precious few days on this earth, and it does seem like it goes faster. I have no idea where my 30s went. They're gone. Bye. Some of you are like, I have no idea where my 60s went. But you have precious few days on this earth. It goes so quickly hours here. What are you going to give your time, your resources, your loves, and your affections to? What will capture your heart? What will guide you in your life because you you love it so much? 
And I think that's the question you have to ask here when you see what Mary has done and given something so valuable to her to anoint the Lord. So that's one thing that being a follower of Christ looks like, devotion to him. But the second thing is what Jesus explains here in John 13. It means devoted to one another through acts of service. There's the vertical devotion to Christ, and there's the horizontal sacrificial devotion to one another. This is the difference between Judas and a Christ follower. One is focused entirely on self and uses the hours and the resources that he has been given to pursue his own selfish goals. The other understands her life to be a gift from God and pours it out in loving service for others as Christ does here in John 13 for his disciples. So backing up all the way as we close this morning to our are two encouragements from this passage. Let's put them together, right? How do you grow in your devotion to Christ and to others? How are you willing to give up your resources and your time and your affections and your energy to be committed to him? Well, that happens through the first encouragement as you understand his sacrificial substitutionary death for you. When you begin to reckon with the fact that he has died on your behalf and you live because he went to the cross, now the affection starts to flow. And now it is much easier and more natural to give your life away in service and devotion to him and to others. So let me give you a couple of questions as we close. Are you trusting in and relying on the substitutionary death of Christ for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Straightforward. Are you there? Are you trusting in him and his death for you? Secondly, what is your life devoted to as its highest priority? What's your ultimate good? What gets you going in the morning? What's the most important thing to you? And how do you show that? Through your time, through your resources, and through your loves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this text. We're so thankful for your sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray this morning that that sacrifice would motivate devotion to you and service of others. Be with us now as we celebrate what you have done for us through taking the Lord's Supper. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.